I'm going to read out of Psalms chapter 3. You're welcome to turn your Bible there or look at it on the screen because this is so important because this is what happens when you, when you have a day of trouble. Because trouble comes to everybody. And trouble is something that teaches us, but it also tests us. And in Psalms chapter 3, this is what I call when trouble comes. This is David. I'll give you a backdrop in a moment, but let me read it to you. Lord, how they've increased who have troubled me. Many are those who rise up against me, and many are those who say of me. There is no help for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory and the one who lifts up my head. I cried to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me from his holy hill. That's Jerusalem. I lay down and I slept and I awoke. I like that. It's one thing to lay down and sleep. It's another thing to wake up. That means you're alive. I'm just telling you. I, I lay down and I slept and I awoke for the Lord sustained me. And I will not be afraid of 10,000s of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O God, for you have struck my enemies on the cheekbone and you have broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people. Selah. This is when trouble comes. God comes through in a way you never thought, dreamed, or imagined. And when God comes through, everything is going to be all right. Father, thank you today for your word. It's a lamp and it's a light. And we're going to trust you today to do what only you can do. God, help us to walk in freedom. In the name of Jesus and all God's men and women said, amen. amen. Turn to your neighbor and say, you're really good looking. And go ahead and sit down. Thank you again for being here today. Would you give the worship team one more round of applause? Thank you, team. They're just getting better and better and better. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for watching, by the way, of the Internet. And next week when you come, don't come alone. Bring somebody with you. Uh, it'll be a blessing to you and a blessing to them. Invite somebody. Uh, there's something for them here at Oasis Church. But we're glad you're here today. But how many of you know trouble comes to everybody? I think this is a message literally that is for everybody in this room. Nobody will leave this service today or by watching it will say, that wasn't for me. Because everybody has gone through something and has gone through trouble. How many of you have ever been in trouble before? Let me see your hands. All of you posts mostly have raised your hand. How many of you have just came out of a kind of a, a, a situation of trouble? Let me see your hand. How many of you believe the person next to you is a troublemaker? No, don't raise your hand. You're raising your hands. Trouble does something because trouble strengthens us. It, it toughens us. It, it takes that spaghetti spine that we have and transforms it to steel. Trouble does something that nothing else can do. It causes us to analyze our life, and we get into trouble, and we kind of run, we run from it. We hate it. We don't like it. We, we complain about trouble. We know it's going to be a day of trouble. When the bird outside our window is a buzzard, we know it's going to be a little bit of a difficult day. How about you know you're in trouble when your horn accidentally goes off and you're behind a Hells Angels biker club and your horn won't stop going? You know it might be a little bit of trouble. Trouble does something, though, however. It causes you to take a personal examination of ourselves, of our surroundings, of the people in our lives, and it causes us to reflect where our reflections need to go upward, where our help comes from. You do not know how good God is until you get into the day of trouble and he reaches out and he snatches you out of the ashes of despair and misery and you realize what a great God that you serve because you've come through that trouble. It's really important 
But I got to give you a backdrop this morning of Psalms chapter 3. In Psalms chapter 1, when you started this series out, if you were here, we talked about the blessing of the man or a woman. To be congratulated is the man or the woman who does something. They choose not to walk in the counsel of the ungodly. They don't stand in the way of the sinners and sit in the seat of the scornful. But they delight themselves in the law of the Lord. They meditate on that law day and night. It's what David said, thy word that I have hidden in my heart that I may not sin against God. What he's talking about, I've memorized this word. So when affliction comes, when trouble comes, I'm to be congratulated because I chose the right thing. Psalms chapter 2 was last Sunday, and it was the war on truth, a systematic unseen hand that's taken America into the abyss and causes what's right to seem wrong and what's wrong to seem right. We're in a battle, a culture battle of, of people coming against God and calling truth, uh, calling error truth and calling truth falsehoods. And there's a battle that's raging, and it's the war that's happening on truth right now. But Psalms chapter 3 is a different one. You have to realize when David is writing this psalm, you have to know the background of the psalm or you'll just read it and you'll overlook it. So I want you this morning and those of you watching, get mentally riveted of what I'm going to share with you. Lean in because this has taken intense study to get us to this place today. Because this is a picture in Psalms 3. If you don't understand it, you will not appreciate the importance of why he is writing this psalm. King David has just flee Jerusalem. Remember it was David who was anointed by the prophet Samuel to become the king of Israel. At that time Saul even though Saul loved David he became jealous of David and the anointing on David's life and David had 13 years of on the run. 13 years of being told you're the king but having to go through the process of pain to finally reach his destiny and become the king of Israel. But now he's on the run. Not from a demonized madman named Saul. No, he's on the run from his son Absalom. Absalom has seized the throne. He has raised an army of almost 30,000 men and they're screaming for David's death. They're wanting his head on a, uh, on a platter. You know, it's bad enough when one person wants to take you out, but when 30,000 want to take you out led by your own son, how many of y'all know you're having a bad day? You've got some issues going on. There's trouble a-brewing. It's trouble. David is sitting around the campfire. And as he's sitting around the campfire, he's there with his faithful friends. There's Joab, his commander-in-chief. There's Benaiah, the friend from David's youth. Benaiah, the scriptures tell us that he killed a lion with his bare hands. He ripped his head off, his head apart, his mouth apart, like tissue paper. You know, when you get into trouble, you really need some lion slayers. Those men and women that stay the course and who do not run in the day of battle. You need some lion slayers as friends because friends are really your friends when they stay when you're in the midst of trouble. That's Benaiah. He's David's friend. He's a lion killer. Then there's Abishai. He's David's cousin. Abishai killed 300 men at one time with one sword and bloody hand-to-hand -hand combat. Joab, his commander's there. David looks around the campfire at his friends. These are battle-hardened soldiers. These are not wallflowers, and these men are loyal to David, not that brat on the other side of the hill that wants to kill his daddy. Now, these men are loyal. They're ready for a fight. They know the fight is coming, and as the fight is getting ready to come, David begins to look at the stars. And I can imagine in the theater of my mind, as he looks to those stars, he's remembering 
the years that he took care of his father's sheep, and he was the shepherd of tending those sheep. And he remembered the songs that he used to sing, flirting with God's anointing. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He anoints my head with oil. He, he, my cup runneth over. He's remembering those days in the shepherd field. But he's also remembering. He's remembering how God brought him through those years, 13 of them, as Saul, a demonized madman, would chase him across the hills of Israel like a hound would chase a wounded deer. He's remembering. The point is, sometimes I think it's important to remember our past so we can appreciate our present. It's true. Sometimes when you've been blessed for a long time, you know, when everybody's doing good, bills are paid, kids are doing good, you've got food on the table, and you've been blessed for a little while, you've got a lot of Jesus in you, you've got a lot of the Word in you, you've been blessed for a little while, it's good that God brings us to this place of remembrance so we can remember what He's brought us from. And rather than thank God when we get into trial for the victory that will come, sometimes because we get complacent and we get status quo, God has to bring Bring us through a day of trouble so we can remember that he brought us out. What he did when we were lost and without him. What he did when we were up in the club thinking we were all that and a bag of chips. But go home at night and cry lonely teardrops. We remember how he delivered us from drugs and alcohol. I don't know about you, but some of you need to remember what God brought you from. You need to remember how God delivered you out of the hand of the enemy. Some of you shouldn't even be alive right now. But God delivered you and brought you out. You need to remember that God did it before. He'll do it again. Turn to your neighbor and say, if he did it before, he'll do it again. Turn to the other neighbor and say, ditto. It's important to remember. That's why everywhere I go, I, I never neglect if the opportunity arises and God opens the door to share my testimony. Even if it's brief in moments and clusters and segments are the entirety of it, I'll, I'll always try to do that because I always want to remember what God has brought me out of. I want to remember where God has brought me from. I don't want to forget that because it shows me if he did that before, when I get into a day of trouble, he can do it again. Now let's get back to that campfire. Back to that campfire, there's Joab, there's Benaiah, there's Abishai, and David, the sentries on the ridge. Can you see him today? His sword is drawn. His, his eyes are peeled toward Gilead, where Absalom and 30,000 men are screaming for David's head. So what did David do? Let me ask you another question. What would you do? If everything that you've loved has been taken from you, and now your own son is plotting your death... David did what David knew how to do. He put his pen to parchment, and he started to write Psalms chapter 3. And he begins to write it. Joab glances to the guard to make sure his sword is drawn, and he's alert. And there's David. I can see him by the campfire, with the bedroll, writing fearlessly as though he's in the palace in the serenity of his own study. And God brings David to a place of trouble because he asked David to do something, examine his life. I think God allows a day of trouble to come to us so we can examine our own lives. That's why the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, let a person examine themselves to see if they be of the faith. The faith of God will start out before you ever know how it's going to turn out. And faith does not demand a miracle. 
Faith creates the environment for the miracles to happen. You know, the Bible tells us to have faith in God. It doesn't say have faith in faith. It says have faith in God. So you have to examine your life to see if you have faith in God. When trouble comes, when trials come, when things aren't going well with your family, with your relationships, with your spouse, with your health, God allows you to examine yourself to see if you be of the faith. Not a faith of a silly denomination that has nothing to do with the word or will of God. Not the faith of some nitwit trying to teach you things that are not found in the Bible, but faith in Almighty God that he would never leave you nor forsake you, even even to the ends of the earth, having faith, examine yourself to see if you have that faith to say, God, I don't understand you, but I'm going to trust you. God, I can't explain this, but I'm going to trust you. God, I can't defend this, but I am going to trust you. We have to examine ourselves when we get into the day of trouble. God put that in us so we would do that. The David's title of this psalm is interesting because when you look at the title of the psalm, it's found in the Hebrew word of zamar. And zamar is a Hebrew word that means to prune or to cut off. Gadi are non-productive branches. So he titles the entire Psalm 3 of zamar, pruning, cutting off gadi God, uh, or, or what I would call unproductive branches. How many of you know pruning can be painful? Pruning is painful. When God the gardener starts to get into the vineyard and he approaches your life as a fruitful tree. Remember Psalms 1 established you're a tree. And you're a tree that's planted by rivers of living water. And when God establishes that you're a tree, now the gardener comes by because he wants to make sure that that tree is producing fruit, lasting fruit, fruit that remains and fruit that will bear in its season. But how many of you know productiveness requires pain and sometimes pruning can be painful. I can see God the gardener coming out in our lives when situations come. When uncertainty comes, the pruning shears come out and God starts cutting off non-productive parts. He starts cutting off non-productive branches. I can see him going, oh, here's greed. Got to go. Oh, you're robbing God from the blessing that he wants to put on you. That's got to go. You're going to have money, but you're going to have bags and they're going to have holes in it because you haven't realized that doesn't belong to you. That belongs to me, says the Lord. And God says, cut Cut, cut, you'll make a million dollars a month and you'll need a million one to make ends meet. Cut that thing. Oh, here's gossip over there. You're calling the phone ministry. God knows, oh no, get the pruning shears out, darling. I'm gonna cut this thing once and for all. I got anger over here. God says, I wanna cut that out of your life. Here comes the clipping shears. I'm cutting that anger out. I'm cutting, you can't even have a good relationship anymore. I'm cutting that gossip out of your life. I'm cutting that self-reliance out of your life. I'm cutting this, I'm cutting that. And before you know it, you're bare, naked, and afraid. I know you never watched that show. And if that tree could talk, it would scream at the top of its lungs, get your hands off me. Because now that beautiful one-time tree that had all that fruit on there and had all those branches, now it's skinny. 
It's drawn back, and it doesn't look like it's going to produce anything. And God says exactly what I want from you. I want to produce in you the greater things in you, so I'm going to cut those branches off. I'm going to cut that relationship off. You think you got it going on. I'm going to cause that man to cheat on you because I'm going to show you what a low life he really is. I will cause those places that you thought were straight, I'm going to gnarl them up, and you think you've got this thing handled. God says, I'm going to throw a monkey wrench in the program. I'm going to cause these things to come against you, these things to come before you, because I am into producing fruit, much fruit, more fruit, and fruit that remains. Can we give the Lord a hand clap this morning? God wants to produce fruit in you. He's a gardener. And when he created man out of his own image in Genesis chapter 1, remember, it was dirty hands and muddy hands that went into that soil and made man and woman out of those own, out of his own image. It was God who did that. Remember on the resurrection when Mary went to the tomb and she thought it was a gardener there. It wasn't a gardener. It was Jesus. Jesus rose from the dead. But they thought it was a gardener. Why? Because God wants you to understand he's always looking to produce out of you. He always wants you not to produce what society says, what your upbringing says, what your ethnicity may bring you, or what your culture you think has for you. God wants to produce in you kingdom business to produce fruit. When those pruning shears come out and he starts cutting those non-productive branches, it could be painful, but I can see the Lord stepping back saying, you don't understand, I am the ultimate gardener, and what I'm going to produce in you, you may look a little bit, uh, little bit thin right now, you may look a little bit fatigued right now, you may look a little bit, uh, just a little bit, just kind of strung out a little bit right now, but what I'm going to produce in you, I'm going to make you a, a succulent tree, you're going to be overflowing with fruit. You're going to be producing so much. You're going to be blessing other people. I think that's important because he makes us what we really want to be, even though we don't know how to get there. I'm going to say that for those over here because you look friendlier. He makes us what we want to be because we really don't know how to get there. And the reason we don't know how to get there, because if we knew how to get there, we would have gotten there. So he makes us what we're designed and destined to be, not what you think you need to be, not what your mama had told you you're going to be. Mamas cheer about everything. And it's not what your family have told you. It's not what your spouse have told you. It's what God says about you that is ultimately of all importance. And so there's something to be said about that this morning because Jesus said it in the New Testament, I'm going to prune it, and if it doesn't bear fruit, I'll cut it down. There's two serious things happening here, and there's only two options here for a believer, pruning or being cut down. God says, I'm going to either prune it or I'm going to cut it down. It's going to be thrown over the wall, and it's going to be burned. How many of you know you're pruned if you do and you're pruned if you don't? Because God says, I'm going to prune this thing, and if it's not producing, I'm going to cut it down, throw it over the wall, and it's going to be burned. I want you to do something today. This is homework for all of you today. I want you to get out a list and write out the wasteful things that you've been doing, the things that are eating up your time, the things that are eating up your money. See, some of you are buying things you, you just know you shouldn't be doing, eating up your money, and it's producing nothing. 
but you keep going in circles. Oh, you're going with great velocity. You're just spinning, spinning, spinning. You're going with great velocity, but you're only going in circles. You know, you will not change what you will not confront. And when you confront it, you can change it. And when you change it, change starts to happen. And when you hear those clicking shears, it's time for God to produce something in you. So don't get upset. Embrace it. And say, God, I don't understand it, but I'm going to let you slice me and dice me. I'll let it happen. You know, there are things that David did that shows us what to do in the day of trouble. I'm going to deal with one of them this morning. Next Sunday when you come back, I'm going to deal with some other things. But the first one I want you to understand, when David got into his trouble, he refused to let bitterness overtake him. He refused to let bitterness overtake him. How do we know that? Because the scriptures tell us that. They are yelling, where is your salvation? Where is your God? He didn't let in the day of trouble bitterness to consume him. David's enemies are now saying, there's no help for him in God. What an insult that is. David, who writes the Psalms. David, who became king of Israel by the sovereignty of God. David, who was the man after God's own heart. Now his enemies are saying, there's no, God has forsaken him and turned his back on him. There's no help for him in God. David knew that bitterness can be a cancer. Listen to the scriptures in Hebrews 12 and 15. It says, look carefully. What does the word carefully mean? Looking carefully. It means examine yourself. Take a self-examination of what's going on. Least you fall short of the grace of God. Do you know, friends, there's nowhere in the scripture where the grace of God could be exhausted except right here. God's grace is unbelievable. It's scantless. It takes anybody, anything, anyone, but it falls short when it deals with this issue. When you let this root take hold of you, and the scriptures call it a root of bitterness, and it doesn't affect just one. It starts to affect many. Least a root of bitterness spring up, causing trouble, and thereby, thereby becoming defiled. You see, it's saying this root of bitterness doesn't just hurt one. The root of bitterness hurts everybody, everybody in the family. The root of bitterness hurts everyone in the church. The root of bitterness is not something that just comes and just affects you. It starts to affect everything you touch and everyone you say. It affects everyone you know. If you see it in your life, you have to get rid of it. Or it destroys you and it destroys everyone you love. Listen closely, because it is our nature. It's our nature to blame someone else for our trouble. It is in our nature, our fleshly nature, to blame someone else for all of our trouble. Do you know self-justification is Satan's substitute for repentance? It's true. Self-justification is the substitute for repentance. Blaming someone else for all the reasons why we're acting like we're acting. Blaming someone else. It didn't just start in the 21st century because Facebook blasted you open. They didn't Snapchat you. They left you on red. They didn't do what I needed them to do. What's the point? This started in Genesis. The blame game didn't begin when you got on social media. It began in the book of Genesis. When Adam ate the forbidden fruit and God came seeking him in the cool of the day. Remember, he's a gardener. And he came in that garden in the cool of the day and said, Adam, where are you? How many, how many of you know he's asking a question he doesn't need the answer for? He's saying, God, where are Adam's asked the question, 
And the first thing out of Adam's mouth was, this woman you gave me, God, she did it. You know, you'll never figure women out, men. You know that because God made them while we were asleep. Adam went to bed single. He woke up married. Watch out when God's working. You might wake up and, you know. He blamed the woman. He said, this woman you gave me, God, she did it. And then what did Eve do? She blamed the serpent. She said, the serpent, he did it. The serpent, he made me do it. Self-justifications of their action based on what someone else did. That's what bitterness does. It causes trouble to fester in the mind first. And then it destroys your emotions. It destroys your relationships. Then it starts to affect your health. Bitterness is a tiny seed. It's virtually invisible, but it begins to manifest itself. It starts right here in your speech. Then it starts in your emotions. Then it comes out of your attitude. Now you've got an attitude and you're blaming Stockton. You're blaming your ethnicity. You're blaming your culture. You're blaming your upbringing. You're blaming all these things. And God says, no, it's a root that's happening. It's a seed of offense that's planted there. When we get offended, we're not choosing to examine ourselves. We're choosing to justify the actions. We choose to blame someone else. It's the soil of the enemy, and it's the root of bitterness. It takes hold. Offense grows, and we start to spiritually die. We start to die. Listen, you're going to be offended. Can I tell you, all of us have been offended. And if you haven't, where have you been? You will be. Sooner or later, you are going to say and do something that someone is not going to enjoy. They're not going to like it. They're not going to like your promotion. They're not going to like the kids. They're not going to like the church you go to. They're not going to like the house you live in, the apartment you live in, the car you drive. They're not going to like what you said or what you've done, and they're going to come after you. And you're going to have to make a decision. Am I going to be offended? are instantly in that moment, say, no, Lord, I'm not going to be self-justified. I'm going to totally, completely forgive right now. Listen to Colossians 3, verse 12. I love this scripture because this scripture is for you and I today. This is a rhema scripture. That means it's a right now word. Listen to it. It says, therefore, as the elect of God, elect of God, holy and beloved. I love that because you didn't do anything to become elect of God. You didn't do anything to be holy and beloved. So God didn't say, you are a little sinner saved by grace. I can't stand the fundamentalist prayers that people pray acting like they're so drawn out and they're so tore up that they're just an old sinner saved by grace. I used to hear people pray when I'd go to different events. I just stopped going because they would be so depressing. Oh, thou wast in the heavens. If thou could have been the circle of the earth who sits upon the circle of the earth, I am but a worm in the earth thinking God's going, what are they saying? God didn't say you were an old sinner saved by grace. He didn't say that. He said, you are elected. You know, when you go to the ballot box, you have to be chosen if you're going to win or not. They, that means they picked you. Do you know what God did? He picked you. He picked you. And not only did he pick you, you're not an old sinner saved by grace. No, no, no. He picked you and he called you beloved. And then he called you holy. Oh, He said, I've elected you. That means I've chose you. You are beloved and you are holy. 
So you're not an old sinner saved by grace. You're not an old dust of the earth, little worm back to the ground. None of that nonsense. That's all religion and denominationalism. That's what people say they want to hold you down. God says you're elected, you're beloved, and you're holy. Not by the clothes you wear, the color of your hair, or because you wore makeup or not. It has nothing to do with outward apparel. It has nothing to do with that. But he says, your part is next. Listen to what he says. You're elected, you're holy, you're beloved, but now you have to put on something. That means when I got up this morning and Jennifer put this on me, I had to receive it. I received what she put on me. Didn't necessarily like it, but I received it. No, I'm teasing. But God says, your part now, you got to put on. Everybody say, put on. You have got to put on tender mercies. You got to put on kindness. You got to put on humility. God says, I'm not going to do that for you. I put on that you're elected. I put on that you're beloved. I put on that you're holy. But you've got to put on the kindness. That means you can't be acting ugly in Jesus' name. And then quote scriptures that are not even in the Bible. God don't like ugly. It's not even in the Bible. God's going to curse you. It's like, where do you get that crazy talk? God helps those that help themselves. No, Ben Franklin said that. But you have to put on this. That means like I, like I put on this little shirt here, this little sweater. I'm going to slice the sleeves next week. But you have to put it on. Let's go back to that scripture. Go back to it, please, Rudy. Put it on. Put on mercy. Put on kindness. Put on what? Humility. Humility. Put on meekness. That's not weakness. I wasn't being strong and like, like a, a bully when I said, we'll handle you. That, that's, we're meek, but not weak. That wasn't being like, oh, who do we think we are? No, no, we're protective people. We're meek, but we're not weak. Jesus was meek, but he certainly wasn't weak. So you're to put on humility. You're to put on meekness. And here's the last one you put on, long-suffering. Long-suffering is difficult because long-suffering means you may not know when the outcome is going to change, but you put this thing on and you're going to wear it. And when you wear it, you have an opportunity to wear it well. And so I want to encourage all of us. God's already called you elect. He's already called you beloved. He's already called you holy, not by what you do, but you have to do your part now and put this thing on. And when you put it on, God says you're going to be offended and you're going to have to choose kindness. You're going to have to choose meekness. You're going to have to choose humility. You're going to have to choose long suffering. That means they may not get theirs in this life, but there will be a payday. You know, that when they say, well, I, I, they, they, we just got to get them in this, they, you will have a payday someday. It may not be your day, but God will have the last word. And so I want to encourage you as we close, offense will come. It was Cain who offered the sacrifice when God received it, and he received Abel's sacrifice versus his brother Cain, and he got bitter that God received his sacrifice and not Cain's sacrifice, and literally it consumed him. 
consumed him so much that in an instant he murdered his brother. He murdered his brother because of an offense. It was Miriam in the Old Testament who was angry at her brother Moses because she married an Ethiopian woman and she didn't like it. And not only did she not like it, she let everybody know about it. And when she let everybody know about it, she became offended because Moses married somebody she didn't approve of. And so she let it be known. And Miriam made a personal issue a spiritual issue. And that's what a lot of people do. And she made a spiritual issue out of a personal issue. And that happens to all of us. That happens. There'll be something about you personally, something about you that people resent, and then they make it a spiritual issue. This is what Miriam said. Is Moses the only one in Israel that God listens to, that God speaks to? See how spiritual that sounds? See how it is? And if she would have just spoken the truth, she could have literally just said, hey, I don't like the fact that my brother married a dark-skinned woman. He didn't marry a person like us, an Israeli, a Hebrew. He married an Ethiopian Hebrew because that's what she was. And she would have been honest. It could have been squashed and resolved, but she became angry, and she made a spiritual issue out of it. You know what God did? He struck her with leprosy. Because he wanted everybody in that camp to see what bitterness will really cause, how it looks on the outside, what's happening on the inside. He wanted them to see what had already taken place on the inside, and he manifested it on the outside. And he said, you see those spots on her? Long before they came outwardly, they started inwardly. And that's what happens. They may not see it immediately on the outer, but if it doesn't get handled on the inner, I promise you, as sure as I'm bald and handsome, supposed to say amen, but it's fine. I don't know what I was going to say now. You messed me up. Oh, it's going to manifest. It's going to manifest. So can we stand together all over the building? I put something on the screen for you that I want you to look at in closing. And as we close our time this morning, Nobody leaving, please, unless you absolutely have to, because I think this is the best part of the sermon. Let me give you the formula when you've been offended, because I think we all can come in agreement that we have been offended. So let me give you the formula for it. It's on the screen. Don't curse it. Don't nurse it. Don't rehearse it. Don't disperse it. Hear that? When you've been offended, don't curse it. Do not nurse it, because if you nurse it, it's going to get healthy. Don't nurse it, and certainly don't rehearse it. Don't make it a phone ministry. And don't you dare disperse it out, because it's going to turn leprous, and leprosy is going to come. And the reason you don't do any of those things, so you can reverse it. God has given us all in this building an opportunity, and everybody watching, an escape from bitterness. Release it to God. Because when you and God are a majority, you can take that offense and God can take healing and freedom in that and bring you joy out of that and turn the crooked places straight because the joy of the Lord is more important, friends, than any bitterness. Peace is more important than any getting back at somebody. So you don't get bitter and let it fester. 